Right then, this is Kino Kingdom 25, and uh, some of these are runoffs from last time for both of us. I think we we cut the last one a bit short, so um, there's some here that are now two or three weeks old to me. So maybe a bit hazy on some of them, especially Cube Zero. But <laughs> but that's uh, that's a film that didn't see a trilogy, quite frankly. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I've got um, I've got thirteen in front of me, but a couple of them are two minute trashings. I look at you, TNT starring Oliver Grunner from nineteen ninety eight. So um, yeah, uh, what, what have you been uh, watching recently, Rupert? Have you got? There's no real theme to mine apart from uh, there's a lot of action and horror really this week for me. Mm, I'm just looking through the list. There's a bit of action. Yeah, I'd say action is the is where it's at, but um, it's a real mixed bag this week. You're telling me then that obviously after Star Wars and Rocky, you would now you haven't watched all five Die Hard films then? No, although I have watched one of the Die Hard films, so but oh. we'll keep it a secret about which one it is. <laughs> I know it's number five, the best one. <laughs> and literally one of <laughs> yeah. the best films I've ever seen. So obviously before we go hurtling in, um I've got to do the um the corporate the corporate jazz and just quickly knock through the sponsorship if that's cool. Exactly. We've got to, we gotta pay our salaries, right? <clears throat> Yeah, I'm gonna get those Christmas bonuses. So yeah. Gotta get those Christmas bonuses uh, to the extent of Chevy Chase in Christmas Vacation, where it allows him to install and maintain a full-size swimming pool. That's not twenty quid. That's not twenty quid cash in hand. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> that's not yeah. like that's not like between two point five and three point one percent of your salary or whatever it is. The, the fact that we're meant to feel sorry for a man who owns a massive house in like in, in the New York suburbs or wherever it is, yeah. with a huge family, like none of whom seem to work, and we're meant to feel sorry for him because he can't afford that year to have a swimming pool installed. <laughs> um, so. <clears throat> You leave your lights and telly on when you go away to cleverly trick burglars, but you ignore your shed. Yes, your shed is ripe for thieves, and we can help you to defend it. Head to ShedSafe.com now and purchase one of our speakers with various inbuilt looped audio files to trick those pesky burglars into thinking the shed is occupied, thus thwarting their nefarious nicking plans. Each speaker contains various audio loops, such as pages of a glossy magazine turning accompanied by occasional grunts and the unmistakable sound of a can of lager being opened rifling through drawers filled with metal objects as a voice says oh where did i put that sweep soft weeping punctuated by the cocking of a handgun or an otherworldly theremin style warble amid a cacophony of voices chanting in ancient languages these casual, everyday noises will convince burglars that the shed is occupied, meaning you can sleep safely, knowing that no one is going to steal anything. Own a shed? Get to shedsafe.com right now. That seems pretty well, practical, actually. That's a brilliant idea, actually, yeah. Never even thought of it. I mean, I, I, my father actually owns two sheds, um, uh, and I'm not going to go into the Monty Python sketch, but he owns two sheds. Well, actually, he owns one shed, and, he, and, he, and he's fantasizing about a second shed, so he'd have to get two speakers playing, like different audio files simultaneously so that the burglar will go to one shed and hear like someone turning the pages of a glossy magazine they'll think oh i'll just break into his other shed and they'll turn around and they'll be like oh no there's a cult in there trying to raise cthulhu so i can't go in there either boom <laughs> i i was i i did have uh like quite a few sheds back in the back in the 90s um but my absolute favorite was shed seven right i've also um got the Got the film generator ready here, whirling up to see what gold uh, I've started calling a she. 
Yeah, because people will say like I know she's a beauty. So yeah. my my um, my film generator machine is a she. And let's just hope they don't they don't give me um someone by the way one of our listeners po- genuinely pointed out to me that you know marry me granddad. And, yes. And we we've talked about a Christmas version like marry me granddad. Well, this this person pointed out that Americans say like Mary. And it sounds like both, so you'd have they'd have to see it written down to understand what the title was. Mm. That is, uh, didn't think of that, did we? This is probably why they give different titles to the American market. Yeah, that's probably why this film's never been made as yet. Yeah, yeah. So this this is script gets like brought up to like Warner Brothers. Like, this is amazing, but <laughs> we say it could be Mary or Mary. So on that basis, we're not going to move forward with it into production. And like, ah, oh, mm. bugger. Yeah, um, it's the cutthroat so world of let's, Hollywood. Uh, let me just press the button, wind this baby up. Okay. The Vegetable Murders, Chapter One: Spring Gunyan. The Vegetable Murders, Chapter 1, Spring Gunyan. Now, that, to me, sounds like an animated feature. It does. It sounds like a possible anime, convoluted anime title. It would be Chapter 1, Part 4. <laughs> the <Book> beginning. Eight. <laughs> the beginning of the end. Uh, but it'll be uh, like a West... The, the Japanese title will be, will be something like... Um, uh, hiding, hiding behind the mirror, the vegetable murders in the orphanage. Chapter one, light cuts through sound, and then they'll version one point like, two, and then they'll do like a westernized release of it with all that kind of all the culture and charm taken out of it, and it'll just be the vegetable murders. Chapter one, spring gunyan, and it'll and it'll be really weirdly dry and boring because all the character would have been stripped out of it. Yeah. We've watched the anime I, original, which obviously has a scantily clad woman bending over in the garden constantly. And it's just vegetables leaping hundreds of feet in the air and having really verbal conversations as they do so. Yeah. Which is effectively what all anime is, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, I so, wish it weren't true. Uh, uh, would that it were. I'm going to talk straight away about something we've discussed and that I've been trying to talk about for like three weeks now, and that's Ready Player One. Yes. Um, so this is a this is a film directed by Steven Spielberg and starring our boy Ty Sheridan, um, who plays someone who lives in I think it's like Virginia or somewhere where he just lives in a trailer park with a with his not his mum his aunt and it's like abusive sort of her husband, and he escapes into this fetishized 80s world that's effectively a well basically like a, a what's the what's the a vr world yeah. of warcraft but sort of set uh in a fantasy world so this is in the, it's quite far in the future isn't it it's like 2050 or something <clears throat> yeah around then 2045 i think it is all right hmm. so and, um, 2045 oh. they're obsessed with the 80s yes yes like we would be obsessed with the 40s and 50s now yes <laughs> Although saying that, I, I do chain smoke cigarettes, beat up my partner, and just wear brown suits and pork by hats all the time. So yeah, <laughs> when I'm not going to war, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I'm not going to war, I'm walking around going, Wah! Wah! <laughs> like they did in the fifties. 
Um, <laughs> I'm so, drinking really thick gravy-like ale um, on my way home. Beat the wave. I'm on my way home to chain smoke cigarettes in my shed, which is completely safe. Um, yeah, so uh, Simon Pegg, Mark Rylance rock up in this as well, and Mark Rylance plays. Um, I've actually forgotten his name. Let me have a look at it. He plays James Halliday, who invented this sort of futuristic uh, virtual world and he's left three keys hidden in there and the, the main bulk of the story is taken up by Ty Sheridan's character uh, who is called Parzival trying to unlock these three keys in this world find this, find out where they're hidden in this virtual world and thus he will then own the game that's the prize is you get to you get to be part of this world I forgot the, the name god. of the actual world the god of it what is yeah. the name of the world oh Oasis okay. isn't it? oh right yeah so it's kind of like, remember that cube thing that Peter Molyneux made up? Um, oh, yes. Like mobile thing, and people would chip away at this cube. It was like a mobile app. And then, you, no, Goddess, that was it. So they did the cube thing, but they made something else called Goddess. The idea was that they're going to make this game called Goddess, and whoever whoever won the prize uh, was going to be like God overseeing this game. But actually, it never happens. The person who won never actually got the prize. <laughs> Good old Peter. He's always there for us. He's um, never made any promises he can't keep. So you've actually read the book. I haven't read the book. I, I just went through it as well. So the book of Ready Player One is written by Ernest Klein. Not very well written, but it is written. Uh, and yes, it's um, obviously it's the same, same story. I mean, it is a pretty... Um, yeah, pretty faithful adaptation, really. But of course, the difference is, is that when Ready Player One, and particularly when Oasis is represented on screen, it's quite a different experience to how it's represented in the book. Because if it, it's obviously a nostalgia trip, the idea is, is that it's all about pointing out how things were pretty cool in the past. So, and it's like. I think we talked about this before. It's it's like in the first part of Wreck-It Ralph where you're just constantly seeing characters walking in the background who you recognise. So uh, you'll see like Ryu and Ken or something like that. Um, you know, all these licensed characters will be in the background. Uh, and I think there's like a Minecraft-themed world and stuff like that. Um, so it's all that. But, of course, in the book, um, this, they're just described. So he'll just be saying you just be walking along and then you'll see something from the eighties and he will just say, Oh yeah, that, that was something from the eighties. They used to have stuff like that in the eighties uh, and then move on. No, not really. I mean, at least when it's on the screen, it can be like, right, I'm looking with my eyes and it's like, Oh, that, I can see someone in the background. That's a nice little Easter egg. But of course it's a, it's a movie entirely comprised of Easter eggs. Mm. And I think that's where were, I, I put this on the back burner for for a few reasons. Really, one of the main ones, for the same reason with Pixels, is because obviously I'm hip deep into video games. Whenever a film like this comes out, like this or Pixels or whatever, people say, "Oh, I bet you're going to watch that because." It's, but and I know I think, "Oh no," because it's going to be really hyped up and it's just going to be, you know, it's like the the, the lowest common denominator, like Pixels, yeah. where it's like a big Pac-Man on the cover. Oh, because that was one of the first games, mm. and that put me off this, but. After watching Wreck-It Ralph uh, 2, actually, Ralph breaks the internet, pardon me, um, I, I fancied more kind of virtual worlds, so I was yes. kind of, I was ready for this. And I really like Ty Sheridan, and 
and he is good and the stuff set in oasis is is gorgeous and really mm. beautiful to behold and initially when you're saying oh there's robocop there's ed 209 there's mm. peter weller what's the other guy's name i always forget his name the guy who plays clarence um, um uh, transport oh what's his name Clarence Bordeke. Anyway, so, you know, you put on the blah, 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 there's so-and-so. And what happened was, whilst initially that was really charming, eventually there were so many of them that it felt to me I had the same response to it that I do to observational comedy, which is mm. I find it really tiresome because it effectively felt like instead of someone pointing at something and saying, oh, remember this? Oh, remember when we used to do that? It was just visually showing you with, like, no real basis on the plot, just in the mm. background. Oh, there's girl from Street Fighter. Oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, this is quite tiresome now. I'm actually a little bit bored of this. And it felt quite wearing. I can imagine there are people out there who watch this frame by frame and list every single reference. And I'm yes. sure that's fun for some people to do. But the problem for me is the plot is pretty mechanical. And and also quite silly because in the, in there, they've got this thing called the Sixers, which is a company run by Ben Mendelsohn, who plays the main bad guy, the main antagonist. And they're a company that has got thousands of people that spend every single day, seven days a week, in shifts, trying to work out the secrets to these three keys so they can become the gods of the game. And the first, there's a minus spoiler, the, the way the first key is found is by Ty Sheridan watching a, like a, in this sort of virtual museum of James Halliday's memories, the designer's memories. He, James Halliday says, oh, I just we could go backwards, you know, look like back to the future, just back in time. And he's like, oh, in this race that everyone's in, I'll just reverse. And he literally reverses for like a few hundred feet and just, just finds the first key. And I thought, you're telling me millions of people over half a decade never thought when they know the key is hidden in this one race, they didn't just like reverse at the start ever and mm. they just and that kind of set the tone for me then of like oh this is just really silly when you take away all the majesty of uh, and the, the special effects it's a really basic plot and all of the yes. stuff in the real world is quite boring because you're like yeah oh, oh, the, the thing that's wasn't engaged here, that at all no no and the way that ty sheridan falls in love with olivia cook's character is the most unconvincing romance i think i've ever seen in a film where he is for a start, all of the people in this game, um, different cultures, different nationalities, different languages in some cases, all live in the same town in the real world so they can just meet up at the drop of a hat. And um, he meets up Olivia Cook's character in the game. Bearing in mind you can be anything. He's kind of a, like a handsome alien and she's just a really sexy alien. And they meet up. Not only do they live in the same street, but like they, they fall in love straight away. Straight yeah. away. With meeting. And it's like, what? <laughs> so um, uh, it I will bad. say I would say that it's not it's not on a level of pixels which I found actively like disparaging of video game culture at the same time as using it as a kind of marketing ploy in because in pixels what I really hated about it was that he's relentlessly mocked for liking video games and stuff and there's this sense of like that like actually being into video games is something very childish which an adult sh an adult male shouldn't be doing whereas i think that ready player one is much more it, it embraces video game culture much in a much more positive way but oh yeah I've, I've never seen pixels but i'm assuming just from what you said it's a typical adam sandler's an underdog and he realizes at the end oh actually it's okay it's okay to like what you want Mm. 
Yeah, I can't remember what the final message is. I just remember it being really, um, really, really disparaging. And uh, yeah, really, it suggested that the fact that he was a, a, like into video games at, at some point in his life was some source of shame. And it was it's bizarre. Uh, anyway, and yes, but there is one amazing scene in Ready Player One, which is where Steven Spielberg gets his dream job of remaking The Shining in a very small way and it is incredible sequence so he so part of the oasis which is this is definitely not in the book but he they go to the overlook hotel and and they kind of they enter some of the scenes from the original shining film uh kubrick's film from 1980 and they it's so well done because he actually uses like different film stock and everything or i don't know maybe it's a digital effect but the way it looks it looks incredible um and it looks so convincing. It's not just like, oh, they've just remade um, remade the, the sets and stuff in a slightly different way. It looks like the original film and they're running around in it. And I thought that bit was brilliant. Normally, I would think I would, it would annoy me that, but knowing Steven Spielberg's friendship with Kubrick and how close they were, then it feels like a really nice little gesture uh, possibly anyone else doing it it would just bug me but obviously the shining is one of my favorite films and i really like that sequence i was gonna say when that sequence kicked off your trousers must have been neatly folded <laughs> in a different room well it was a better homage to the shining than all of dr sleep put it that way <clears throat> oh yeah I've, I've never watched that is it tedious so not tedious okay yeah i'll probably i'll watch it at some point but yeah i'm in a rush and that's ready player one it is so I'll, we'll move on then to, I'll talk about The Midnight Sky, which is a Netflix original film. Mm-hmm. Just a quick warning up front. If you just looking at the cast list for this film gives away the twist. <laughs> it's one of them. But I think it's pretty obvious anyway, because it's one of those films that uses pretty standard tropes from the thoughtful sci-fi subgenre that we've seen a million times before. So the year is 2049. So not long after Ready Player One. This is a very different film. Um, it's 2049 and some kind of nameless catastrophe has struck the earth and everyone is returning home to their loved ones, but they're also like basically going to certain doom. Um, so we, we kind of meet, we see this happening from the perspective of uh, this Arctic station and everyone's going home. Um, everyone's doomed. Something's engulfing the world and destroying it, basically. But one scientist, George Clooney, stays behind because he's dying anyway and he doesn't have anyone to go back to. So he's going to stay at the station on his own. Uh, Clooney is also the director here, by the way. Um, and it's written by Mark L. Smith, who wrote The Revenant. So anyway, um, we see some flashbacks um, of a young Clooney. Thankfully, they use just a younger actor rather than de-aging or makeup or anything like that. So see a young version of him um, and it it shows him uh, meeting this woman and they have a child together, but then they um, they break up and he never... It doesn't it seem to meet the child at any point. 
anyway so that's that's then and he's doing all the back in the past he's doing all this um research on finding a new planet or actually a moon i think it is so that uh, one of jupiter's moons so that humanity can get off the planet before this catastrophe takes over the world so back in the present um clooney just starts going bonkers in this place and he finds a child um he it, like a survivor and he can't quite get anyone on the radio so she's his responsibility um and they have to survive in this arctic place he's trying to get a message to a spacecraft which is returning to earth from this moon which was hopefully going to save humanity turns out that the moon's no good they're returning home he's trying to get a message out to them to say right don't come back earth is screwed uh felicity jones is part of the team um david ayelowo and kyle chandler so these are all actors i like um and fancy um <laughs> and yeah so he's just trying to get them to while he's looking after this kid and befriending this child survivor he is also trying to prevent them from returning to earth because it's screwed i yes so this is the whole film is pretty generic to be honest and it's not really helped by Clooney has this quite gentle, almost styleless directorial way of doing things. I mean, you get some, there's the odd big action set piece, but it's, and it's, it's handled in a quite a clear way, but it's, there's no real style to it. And it, it just kind of looks like a good budget TV show really. And some of the CGI is very unconvincing. Um, I, absolutely hate the music in this film and i think this is something which is particularly serious for a, a sci-fi film um because it's by alexandra desplat Displa. i've he's been around for ages but i it, i loathe it it's it's really cheesy when it should be mysterious and it's it's derivative when it should be dramatic and it's sentimental when it should be tragic and he's got these really generic um like electronic textures in the background because it's sci-fi <laughs> so that's really bad and that really affects the film um and so a lot of the film is set aboard this ship with felicity jones and that on their way home and and the dialogue is just so unconvincing on the ship I just don't believe that these trained professional astronauts would speak the, the way they do. Um, like there's this bit when Carl Chandler's character says to the captain, it's your job to turn the ship around and help humanity to survive. It's my job to keep a promise to my family. Like what? That's what does that mean? It's like, no, just do your job. Stop it. You're an astronaut. For God's sake. It's like protocol doesn't fly out the window because of your irrational need to return to your dying planet. Um, yeah, so the, a complete lack of pragmatism on their part is just not heroic. It's just stupid. And and honestly, all of the agonizing about whether to return to Earth just sounds like <clears throat> trash written by a teenager. So it's, it's pretty badly written. I, I like Felicity Jones a lot. Uh, she's really good. And it's nice to see George Clooney playing a proper bearded old man like quite crooked and not really i mean he's not tough or anything um you know he's not trying to show off like how he hasn't like he's still got it like in the american or whatever he's like just an old man a crooked old man um it's i'd say that it's better than the massively overrated gravity which also had terrible music by the way but it doesn't have um it's not as good as a lot of the other recent films 
which have this which covers some of the same ground like it's not as good as a martian it doesn't have the intelligence of solaris it doesn't have the crazy energy of ad astra it doesn't have the emotional range of contact it doesn't have the scope of interstellar i suppose if you've watched all of those films uh and you love them then give it a crack but i just thought it was a bit dreary and derivative to be honest i actually watched this and i, I watched it in two parts and okay. i found it i found it so like boring that i didn't even bring it up in the podcast I just like let it slide by, um, but what you were saying, um, absolutely, I had no emotional engagement. It was kind of at the start of the film. It reminded me a little bit, and I, I always go back to this of Logan when I thought, "Oh, this is going to be Hugh Jackman by himself in the woods, just yes. screaming at the moon." And I thought, with well, this, it's just going to be a really slow, languid film of George Clooney's like descent into loneliness in in like a dead planet. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, here we go!" And the moment any other characters are introduced. And the way, by the way, that Felicity Jones speaks to her her lover, David Ayelowo, is it's like they're in a script reading where they're going through a first draft that's been filmed. Because there's no there's like no emotional connection between them at no. all. Uh, to the point that I thought, Oh, you're the father. Oh, because yeah, I, I get I, I get nothing from this. Yeah, I didn't I, it it seemed like it's one of those films where like the twist, if you like, is I don't know whether the they were trying to hold back the twist or or what because it was so obvious what it was it was just a case that i was waiting for it to get to the point where it's like well i i know what's going on here it's very obvious what's going on here am i is there meant to be some mystery about this because basically you're just building building up to the big emotional climax and it's like but but it's so poorly written up to that point you're like you don't have any emotional engagement anyway so the big emotional climax is just it just completely falls dead. I, I did wonder, um, I, I didn't notice the music, but I would, did wonder when it comes to that reveal, that big emotional climax, mm. why I just, I just okay. felt nothing. And I think yeah. that's a big part of it. And also when that does happen, I feel like they cop out a bit. Yeah, I feel like it's a little. Well, you can't really explain why, but I, I just thought, no, oh, okay, it's that you could have done something and had a, and had a, a scene that maybe would have really, really got people's heartstrings, but then it, yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't do that. And I thought, oh, so you've even kind of like copped out on that as well. Yeah. Well, well, without spoiling anything, there's. I, I mentioned Interstellar a few weeks ago, and in that, there's an amazing. The probably the best scene is where, um, where Matthew McConaughey's character gets like messages from earth and to him like an hour's passed but on earth like 20 years has passed and it's really emotionally devastating and done in a really clever way and that's like just a a scene in the middle of the movie that's not like the big emotional climax that affected me much more than the supposed big moment in this film because it just didn't do it didn't do enough up to that point that's the problem so yes and you're right it is boring as well <laughs> uh, well, I'll move on from Midnight Sky onto Cube Zero, which is the third and final entry in the um, in the in the Cube Films trilogy. Mm. Um, this is the one that was directed by that Vincenzo Natali, I think. Or Cube was directed by Vincenzo Natali, wasn't it? Sorry. Yes, he was. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is. Uh, so I watched that, and then it's. I think I seen Cube Two at some point, so I thought I'd watch Cube Zero. It says here that it stars someone called Zachary Bennett, but I'm pretty sure that it's just a circa mid-90s Johnny Vaughan. 
if you watch this film, I was watching thinking, is that Johnny Bourne? Um, it's not, obviously. Um, so, so the film starts off with a man called Riken trying to escape the cube. For those who don't know, the cube was, I think it's like a late, uh, like 97, 98 Canadian horror film where a group of people in just boiler suits with name tags on wake up in a, in a, in a cube, cubed room and they, they find out that these are interconnecting rooms and each of them has a, some of them are safe and some of them have traps in like they'll spray acid or laser grids will cut you apart and they just have to try and work their way through it and it was an interesting film it was like a real sort of high concept thing and it, i remember really enjoying it as, as a teenager um mm. so to go back to this now especially after you've had all the saw films and torture porn has come and gone you realize that this escape is room ve- escape room which is literally which one. i which I've also that one, that one, which I've also watched this week. Um, I've watched all three films titled Escape Room now. Um, so this, yeah, it, it, you realize it's just it's a very basic concept that isn't interesting anymore because it's been done so many times. So what they do in this film to try and you remember, you remember when It Follows came out and we both mm. absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. And then I found an interview with, I think, one of the producers or director. And they said, oh, yeah, for the second one, we're thinking about just going into, like, the origin of the monster and where it came from. Mm. And I said, no one wanted that. No one wants that. The Prometheus um, problem. Yeah, a trilogy of films. Well, Cube Zero, is, it's almost like, well, we've done the same film twice. So for the third one, we'll just throw in some sort of half-assed, oh, this is what goes on outside the world, outside the cube. Mm. So what you're left with is these people pretty much going through the exact same motions as the first film um even to the point of the characters who play the different characters play almost the same parts you've got you've got a couple of women you've got like a uh a, a kind of a useless bloke you've got a guy that goes mad and starts attacking everyone. it's literally the same setup but in this one it'll cut outside to this sort of room where pe- two two of the technicians that run the cube are just chatting and every now and again, they get visited by someone with the worst eye prosthetic I've ever seen, who looks a bit like Rick Mail. Um, and it's not nonsense. It's just an absolute nonsense film. And all the time I was watching it, it's got bad CG in it as well and bad practical effects. I just thought this needed to be one film and done. It did not be a trilogy. It need to be a trilogy. Yeah. And the longer the film goes on, the longer the film tries to tie itself in a circle to the first film, the more embarrassing it gets. So mm. if you're going to watch any of these films, just watch Cube. And I don't even know if that's aged well, to be honest, because I haven't seen it in 20 years. I've seen it probably about five years ago, and it's it's pretty good. It is still it's... good, is it? Yeah. There's something about horror. I mean, it is basically horror, isn't it, these, these films? And yeah. there's something about horror which attracts franchising in a way that other genres don't uh i, I suppose action movies to a two extent i think so and also because if you have a, a like a, a strongish high concept like stuck in a cube with traps then it's almost like you can use that formula again and again and because horror relies so heavily on kills well you know mainstream generic horror re- relies so heavily on kills then essentially uh, what you all you need is to make the same film again, but with different kills in it. You can't really do that with other genres in the same way. Uh, so, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean it should be done, as is evidenced by this and many other horror franchises. But it all comes down to money at the end of the day. I mean, if people are, uh, you know, watching Tremors 5 or whatever, then they're going to keep making them, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. 
um, because, and part of the problem is, is that people like us have such, we are so forgiving of the nonsense you get in these horror films because, frankly, we are quite happy just watching different kills every time. Uh, so we're the problem here. You um, specifically, yes. I, Me specifically, I am the problem, yes. Yeah, because I'm the one who, you know, buys like a £15 Blu-ray of Grizzly from 1976 and, <laughs> and enjoys it. Yeah, isn't that just about like an unhappy baby? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, it's just about someone looking at their bank statement and just saying, "Oh, this is this is grisly." <laughs> We've got some grisly news coming up. Um, yeah. So, all right. Well, I won't. Wa- I haven't. I've only watched the original Cube. I won't watch. I won't watch either of the sequels. Then. No, there's no need. Okay. Um. Uh, let's talk about Silk, uh, which is on Prime. Uh, this is an action film, and it starts with it starts with a shootout, right? And the bad guys are shooting out of a, like a warehouse, and one of them shouts at the cops, "Eat my short pig!" That is the level we're talking about here. Okay. When was this made? Nineteen eighty-six. Mm, okay. It's um, it's a. Uh, Pretty low budget action film set in Honolulu, obviously. It stars Cecilia Verrill from Hell Comes to Frogtown. It, oh. Her name is actually shortened to C E C, but I don't know how to pronounce that. What's that? Kek? Sek? I guess it's Cease. Cease? Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, all right, we'll go with that. Anyway, so. And it's directed by Sirio H. Santiago, who is a prolific purveyor of absolute twaddle from from the fifties <laughs> right up until two thousand and I think two thousand fourteen with his last film. Um, you know, film titles like She Devil in Chains and Vampire Hookers. I mean, he's, he's trash right. that sort of. The IMDb um, like synopsis of this, right? Okay, so Silk. The toughest cop in Honolulu busts small-time smugglers only to reveal a larger syndicate smuggling Asian mobsters into the States by buying the identities of Hawaiian citizens. So, yes, it's just going around and getting in gunfights, really. Um, The theme song of this film has got a proper theme song, right? And the lyrics go, she's smooth as silk. She'll feed you milk on the world's injustice. I don't even know what that means. Feed you milk on the world's injustice. No idea. Brilliant though. The score, actually, the score throughout. <laughs> the score is is comprised of like like really milky instrumental soft rock. It's bizarre. Like there's not it's not dynamic at all. It's really weird. Um, some of the lighting is okay. The night, the action scenes aren't very dynamic, but the editing is is reasonably snappy, and the action does come along very often. Um, cars just explode on impact. Uh, there's occasionally some quite good stunt work, like early on, there's a, like jumping from a train onto a car and stuff. But but honestly, there's a real lack of imagination in the shootouts. The chase sequences are a little bit better, but the shootouts, oh my god, they're boring. Um, it's just it's just he shoots, she shoots, he shoots, she shoots. That you know, back and forth. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, s- Cease, are we calling her Cease? Cease Farrell. She's 
she's capable fighter and she does certainly look the part she's got like obviously 80s slick back hair naturally she's got she's got a quite mean determined look she, she can't well act. she had a slick back hair didn't she in um in frogtown yeah and she wears a full face of makeup to the gym obviously um she wears like high-waisted fighting trousers four inches away from her boots which is amazing and at one point she wears like this baggy gray cardigan with the sides open like a poncho no idea why it would not protect you from like a brisk wind it shows yeah anyway she's a total 80s burner loads of gel in her hair her love interest who's so obviously the bad guy her love interest he looks like he looks like imagine ron perlman a younger ron perlman with like feathered beach blonde hair but with a hint of Xander Berkeley as well. He's probably in his 30s in this film, but he has the neck of a man 20 years older. It's really weird. He has like, he's got quite bad pitted skin anyway, but he basically looks quite young in the face. But he's got this really like, like wrinkly, weird turkey neck going on. Like he's possibly lost a load of weight in the past or something. What is, what's his name? Who is this oh, guy? I have no idea what his name is. Well, I'll, I'll have to dig it out have i got it on mdb here because i was looking at what else serio h santiago had done in all fairness uh, Rupert, looking at um looking at this list of the cast there's only three people in the main cast that have pictures on imdb yes. so the chances are that i'll never see a picture of this man <laughs> i'll never um, see the picture of the the mystical turkey neck he he does get to say the line i ought to tear your fucking asses off which i thought was quite funny because I was what does that mean? Um, there is oh, there's a scene where someone literally kicks a door off its hinges. So is it Ronnie Cox? It so hard that the entire door comes off its hinges and flies in. Um, but but yeah, so between the action though, and there is quite a bit of action. It's an oddly subdued film. Everyone's like playing it so cool that there's no real urgency to anything, and like events will happen, like. Clearly, major events will happen, but they'll—it won't be dramatic music. Or there'll be like a gentle roll of electronic piano keys that go or something. It's weirdly, oddly serene. Um, you could say smooth as silk in a way, actually. But yeah, it's just that soft rock thing going on in the background. It's constantly really gentle, so it's quite a nice, like, <laughs> it's quite a nice, serene, peaceful film for an action movie. It's really shoddily made, and it there's nothing original about it except for the honolulu setting i suppose um but it's pretty undemanding and it's brief as well it barely hits 80 minutes so clearly you should watch it i think there's a, there's a silk 2 as well directed also by serio <sighs> 8 santiago so i might have to just make some notes here on. silk one and two there we go that's my, that's my notes sorted <laughs> i'm up for that yeah um, it is worth it but oh my god yeah it's just like um yeah it's like it's one of those bad transfers i mean we're going to talk a bit more i'll talk a bit more about bad transfers on prime but you know like when you you dig out one of these like 80s uh films and it's clearly just like and like the ratio is obviously four by three and stuff fine but the the actual image quality is so low it's brilliant but we'll get to we'll get to more of that later on when i hear the word transfers i just always think about um those like tattoos i had as a kid where you put them on and then like wet the back um I still use them actually with Chinese characters when I go out on the pole on my arms. So, All right. 
Yeah, I, I'm single, I am. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> I watched Escape Room, that one. The one with Deborah Ann Wall um, this time around. This which is brings me full circle on my Escape Room trilogy of te- separate and related films. Is this the latest one? Or, uh, no, there's I, one in 2020. I think there's another one in 2021, which I think is a fourth one, because I haven't seen that, actually. Because as then I just, But this is from 2019. And it stars Deborah Ann Wall. Um, uh, and there's a group of people who get these black boxes, these black puzzle cubes, and when they solve them, they get an invite to this this building where they can. It's like a there's like a, I think it's like ten thousand dollar grand prize. They could all do with the money. You've got like a young uh, Asian guy who's bang into bang into escape rooms. You've got a really nervous. A teenager you've got a really there's a girl there who's quite young and like hyper intelligent and you've got deborah amwell who's like a she comes across as a journalistic sort of character and obviously there's a guy who's just a real smarmy prick um it, the film i weirdly enjoyed chunks of this film but there are it's the best escape room film i've seen which isn't really saying much but the the script <laughs> oh the script um so it starts off they're in this they're in this lobby this like lobby just a really modern lobby waiting for the game to start or to be taken into what they think is going to be a series of escape rooms and of course someone triggers something and the heating kicks in and it just gets hotter and hotter and hotter and they have to get out of this room it is immediately immediately obvious that this is a life or death situation because they're mm. in a room where everything is a heat and it's literally and they're sweating and it's just getting hotter and hotter and it gets to the point where the ceiling starts closing down coming down and actual flames are bursting out of things so it's, it's clearly like a life or death situation that they barely managed to get out of and even in the next room um when the temperature drops and they're in this it's quite cool actually they're in this sort of indoor cabin lake frozen lake scenario and they've got to work out how to get through it when the temperature drops and they're literally going blue in the face and one of them faints from just, you know, complete exhaustion. Mm. They then, even after that, some of them are saying, I think this is serious. I think this is genuine risk. And I'm like, no, no shit. I knew that from the first room and I'm not there. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's intriguing when they go into these rooms. It's intriguing when how they're going to get out of it and what the setup is. There's one room which actually I've got a real problem with heights in movies mm. and they go into this one room and it's all upside down in this sort of bar theme and the floor or the ceiling effectively starts falling away and it's like a 400 foot drop down an elevator shaft and mm. a lift shaft, sorry. And it was, it's really well done and it's kind of Deborah and Wall's time to shine in it. And I was, I was tense. I was, there was, I was so tense watching that scene. Cause it was so, I thought it was really well done. Um, but then beyond these sort of uh, sort of moments that titillate, it is just a really clunky plot. And it gets to the point when you realize how much money must have been thrown in in the in the the world of the film. Yeah. What the, the the building they're in and how much money it would cost to get all these setups. It's very clear what's happening. And 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 yet, so when it comes to the end of I kinda of, there's only really one explanation for this. Mm. And I and I guess that and it go and then there's like a bit of a clunky sort of denouement that you think this didn't really did need to be in the film, but as a trashy sort of you know, uh, sort of moment by moment thrill for just seeing how they're going to get in and out of these various rooms, I, I enjoyed it. Everything else around it, not so much. Is it the same sort of appeal as say the Final Destination films, where it's like, um, like you're just waiting for the set pieces to come along, and it's really 
the enjoyment is based on the set pieces. Everything in between is just filler. Yes, yeah. You, every all the all the dialogue could literally be removed, yeah. and I would have the same. It's I, just I think, a framework, really. Yeah. I, I think from the third room, that upside down room, that's when that's when it all kicks in and and stuff constantly happens. But the first sort mm. of thirty minutes, there is a lot of obviously as they introduce the characters and they start having these really unrealistic, overly hostile, bickering conversations. You think mm. I wouldn't mind something happening now, but yeah, it was, it was okay. I didn't yeah. mind it for those. Doesn't sound unlike Cube, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> Escape room films are basically the new Cube films, really, or the, the new Saw films, I suppose you could say. Um, yeah. But at least it's not torture porn. I am yes. glad that phase is gone. Yes. Well, uh, it never really existed for me personally. He's <laughs> just blanked it out of your mind. You didn't watch <laughs> any films between 2005 and 2015, I don't think, did you? No, I didn't. Just in case they turned into torture porn. <laughs> Just in case I darfooed myself. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's move on to Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Oh, what's Escape Room on? What was that? What? That was, that was Netflix. Netflix, okay. Die Hard 2, Die Harder is on Prime. Um, naturally, is the first one isn't on there, so it's only Die Hard 2. Um, and this one, this was made in 1990, directed by Rennie Harlan. Rennie cutthroat island harlan although to be fair he also made uh long kiss goodnight which is brilliant yes yeah so anyway die hard 2 i think this is the weakest of the initial trilogy but it's still better than four or five but then i could make a film better than four or five um this one has has william sadler taking control of washington airport um Brucey boy is there waiting for his wife to get off a plane. Uh, the stakes are pretty high because this guy is basically holding the whole of the, well, all of the flights hostage essentially because um, he's taken over control. So um, he actually brings down a plane and you know, he means business then. Um, I think, yeah, I, I, th- it's like it's bigger this is bigger but not necessarily better than the original and the i the viciousness of the the bad guy in this is clearly an issue because they quite specifically made the bad guy more fun and less of a monster in the third one i know it's so this time around i really noticed how relentless this movie is in terms of uh, the action and also just the sound design is so deafening constantly constantly like machine gun fire massive explosions constantly um so it's literally the sound design is really really blaring it's also really dark like hundreds of people die and really wantonly violent so like i was saying like with hans gruber or um his brother is he called simon he called himself simon Simon yeah, Gruber yeah. is that one? Yeah, cause, um, simple Simon and that. Yeah, so they were obviously quite, they had this sort of sardonic wit going on. Uh, but William Sanders' character, he's just totally humorless. And of course, this time in Die Hard 2, there's no, there isn't, you lose out on that big punchline about them actually just being thieves. Um, because it doesn't apply here, because this really is a politically motivated plan. But at the same time, the whole plot about transporting this guy from Valverde is just kind of lost, because possibly not because it's not interesting, but probably because William Sadler is such a strong presence in the film. Um, And, of course, you see his balls. So 
if you look closely. Straight away. Straight away. Yeah. Um, I don't think the action is all that great in this movie either. Like, um, it's it's either special effects heavy or just a bit static. Like, like there's this opening shootout in the luggage bay, and it's the editing's just a bit poor, and the stunts are a bit feeble. I, I it's if you think about Die Hard, the original Die Hard, is that it's such a it's such a masterpiece of editing. Like in terms of the action, it's so flowing and fluid and exciting but it, it's weird in this like during the action scenes there'll be these weird shots inserted that just look really silly like there's one bit where this plane comes down and bruce willis is on the runway desperately trying to signal to her but it blows up in front of him and it cuts to bruce and he just kind of like leaps to one side it, it's like has he I don't know whether he's meant to have been thrown to one side or he's just jumping to one side, but it just looks like it just looks like he's kind of fallen over. And it's like it sounds like a small thing, but if you compare it is full of these little tiny weird cuts and you compare it to the first film where, you know, shot for shot, the action is just so carefully calibrated and it just looks cheap. Um, but saying that i mean this stuff on the plane is quite amusing it's a clever way to bring william atherton back into the mix because he just spends a movie arguing with bonnie bedelia and of course she gets more to do in this so that's cool uh, when i say more to do she just takes the piss out of william atherton really which is fine um it the music is terrible in this like the closing theme sounds like a 50s war film i know it's that but at least john mcclain actually acts like john mcclain which is more than could be said for Die Hard Five, where he literally just is a completely different character. So, <laughs> yeah, it sounds quite harsh on it, but I mean, I've, we've seen it a million times. It's it's enjoyable, but it's just a little weaker than one or three. Yeah, oh well, yeah, the trilogy definitely goes one, three, two. I mean, it's four or five. I'm not even. It's not like you say. Even at the start of Die Hard Four, it's when it's introduced. It's it's like he's a different person. It's like he's a legend when. It's the whole thing is him, you know, being an everyman and really lucking his way through situations. Yes. Yeah. Um, and of course, this is the Die Hard 2 is the one where to illustrate the fact that the these soldiers have blanks in their machine guns. He walks into a police station, takes his gun out and just starts firing all around the place at all the people, all these heavily armed cops. He just starts firing at them. And of course. <laughs> They would shoot him. They would shoot him dead. Someone would shoot him to stop him from doing that. But of course, that he's made his point. By then, and yeah. they're like, "Oh God, thanks for making your point in such a reckless way." And also, Dennis Franz is in it as well yes. in that scene, so that's fine. Yeah. Um, Hellhouse LLC three Lake of Fire. Um, you you introduced me to Hellhouse LLC because it was a found footage horror film set in the Abaddon Hotel, which it wasn't, wasn't awful. Yeah. yeah. Well, the ending's and, a bit weak, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, it but it was it was good. an interesting premise of this sort of yeah found footage. Uh, they're going to set up this hotel uh, for you know to to let the public in as sort of a ghost thing, and you know it, it it falls apart. And it was it was fine. I enjoyed it. The second one was just a retread, but just it's people then studying what happened in the first one, and it was just boring. The third one is literally the first film again but filled filled with like footage from the other films and then every now and again they'll just wheel in the old cast 
and like put them in a the background to make it spookier. I'm not even going to talk about it. It's just boring. It's a really boring film, and it's so lazy. And the ending is dreadful. Because, of course, this is where they say Hell House LLC Three Lake Fire. So they're trying to basically do what they did in the first one, turn into like a haunted hotel and get people around. They know for a fact that two separate groups of people have been murdered and gone missing in this hotel. And it's something that I don't think would pass the council. I think they'd say, <laughs> no, we're going to just burn that down, I think. Um, and the exact same things happen. And the mm. ending then tries to tries to make it a sort of brings a bit of mythology into it, and it's just painful. God, none it's, of this stuff sounds interesting at all because it, the stuff I found fun and enjoyable about the first one was the subtle stuff, like they'd be filming and something would be they go through a room, and then when they come back through the room, something will have changed. It would be really subtle and creepy stuff like that, and yeah. that's the stuff I like. You don't the mythology and stuff. Forget about that. Just <laughs> yeah. make an enjoyable horror. For, yet another horror <laughs> franchise which has gone on too long, and by that I mean has any sequels more than at one all. film. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's like you say. Funnily, the bits in this are the creepiest. Are are where they're talking and like something will just move in the background. Or you'll you'll see something move mm. across in a subtle way. Um, there's quite a cool sequence where they overhear someone talking to like a woman on a table, and when the camera rounds, she's just gone, and he's like, "What?" And that was quite cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, all, all the big set pieces and the self mythologizing and the constant, the constant cutbacks to footage from the other two films is just lazy. So just watch the first one because the other two are literally just worse retreads. It's always yeah, it's always the subtle bits that stay with you, isn't it? It's never the big set piece moments. I remember a film called The Haunting. Uh, I think it was a Robert Wise film from. Uh, the 60s might have been even 1960 and um in that the creepiest scene was where they're staying in this house and someone um they're, they're staying in this room and and someone just says the next morning um uh why uh why did, were you scared last night why did you hold my hand and the other person just says i never held your hand last night and it was like that sort of thing is creepy because it's like it it plays with your imagination it's that subtleness you don't even have to see it, but it creep you out, the idea, the, the concept of it. As soon as you start seeing all this stuff on screen in a really dramatic, over-the-top way, the power of suggestion, the power of imagination is lost. Yeah, and that's absolutely. what, and that's what you know, the original Hell House did well, was that by having very subtle things shift around in the background or whatever, it's the power of suggestion. It's like what's happening here it triggers your imagination rather than directly informing it if you see what i mean anyway Absolutely. um you've got a few to get through are there any more two minute trashings you want to just quickly get <clears throat> out of the way yeah yeah i watched um a larry fessenden's depraved which is right. sort of a, a, a um an indie retelling of the frankenstein story which was really good um really really good but not really much to talk about it's um it's he obviously wrote directed um he doesn't star in it which is a shame because i like looking at him but he wrote directed edited produced blah 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 and it's it's a very low budget sort of film where it's a, a modern day frankenstein his name's not actually frankenstein but um we see a, a young man get murdered and his parts are harvested and we it's literally a a, a frankenstein's monster you know like a patchwork kind of put together 
from different bodies we don't know where from and it the, the film focuses not so much on um br- bringing frankenstein you know the monster to life if fo- that happens at the start it's more when the experiment is over like what now so he teaches this monster basic you know uh, how to solve simple puzzles and how to speak and then of course effectively just sort of loses interest in him but we're it's a very sympathetic monster because it's really well played actually by the actor um so we, we spend time with him and it's just him in this this loft apartment that he can't really leave and it's just a, a more sympathetic take on it it does devolve into horror at the end, but it's earned it by them because you are completely on the monster's side uh, and the way he's treated, because obviously the way he learns human interaction is through the people around him that are just using him for their own means and ends. So it, mm. it uh, changes the trajectory of his personality. I really liked it. It's a little bit long, but it, you, you hate the people you're supposed to hate and you, you are on his side and it's it doesn't get really out of hand and silly at the end it sort of wraps itself up nicely and is a standalone film that isn't going to turn into a franchise with diminishing returns so that was depraved sure i've seen this really yeah i i think it was one when i was writing for critical critics the u.s site that it was one of the very low budget screeners they sent i remember enjoying it so i I remember it because it's got joshua leonard in it isn't it the one from glow witch project and i remember thinking i remember thinking yes yes that is definitely changed (laughs) yes he looks so different now um what did he look like in the blue witch then well he was really kind of quite skinny and gaunt and and kind of a like a rock guy type of thing Skinny and gaunt, you say? Yes, he's definitely changed then, if that's the case. Yes, yes. Um, but I remember him being quite good. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and yeah, and I remember the yeah the actual Frankenstein guy. He was quite well cast because he has quite an angular face. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I, I mean, I like Larry Fessenden. He does good work, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah he's I'm just, I'm just a big fan of him. Um, so that and then uh, so that was Deprave. And the other two minute one I've got is. Oliver Gruner's 1998 outing TNT, which I think stands for like Tactical Neutralization Team or something like that. This is a film that I, I like. The plot is literally, and it does not deviate. He is part of a team that are mercenaries that sort of take out targets. He doesn't like what they're doing because at the start of the film we see that this team see that this guy they're supposed to kill is in a car with his wife and kids, and they just instead of like taking him out and leaving a fatherless family, they just rocket the car, kill everyone in it. He leaves the team, settles down in some sleepy town somewhere, and then they come to kill him for you know vague reasons at the end that is the mm. plot i have never seen a film that deviates so little from such a basic premise in my life <laughs> um it, it's it's a weird one because of course oliver grinner cannot act as we know but mm. Mm. the town the town he uh, is sort of sets in this sleepy midwestern town um is in middle america is a is the sheriff of the town is his friend and the sheriff actually plays like a really nice part he's just quite a nice humble man and Eric Roberts just sits behind a desk in there smoking cigars and just not doing anything. This this was filmed in 1998. And um, there's a scene in it where they track down Oliver Grunner by he- hearing a phone call. And someone has got a piece of kit in 1998 that he, he listens to it, <laughs> hi- highlights it, 
plays it through like a program, and then he says, "Yes, that's Oliver Gruner, and this is where he lives." I said, "What? What the?" <laughs> They didn't know what they record of. They scan it through like Audacity, like a WAV file, and they can tell who it is and where they live. Brilliant, absolutely fine. Um, what was that uh, film with Will Smith um, from the oh, 90s? Enemy of the State, where enemy they rotate the 2D image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that, where it's like we don't even have that now. No, rotate. It's Jack Black, isn't it? As well, rotating mm -hmm. a 2D static image so they can see that the back of the carabag he's holding has had something dropped into it. That it literally cannot be done. It's information that isn't there. Um, the only thing I want to say about this film, really, because it's so it's so by the numbers. There was a scene at the start um, where he is. He goes to the sheriff. Oliver Grinner goes to the sheriff's birthday party, and he's clearly ex-military. This Oliver Grinner, he's like really ripped. Everyone sees him in the gym, kicking up. You know, just like obviously really super fit. And he goes to. He's in, in this party, like a really wholesome party, all children there and stuff in this bar. And Oliver Grinner goes to go to the toilet, and on the way back, his like his fiance is like being hassled by three brutes, one of whom is played by Kane Hodder, and Kane Hodder cannot act. And they're hassling her, and they're literally like making this, and like squeezing her tits and stuff, obviously being really hostile. And Oliver Gruner goes over there and says, guys, leave her alone. And they're hassling him, they pour a pint of beer on his shoes, but they're like military boots, so I'm, I'm assuming they, they can cope with like some light American lager being poured on them. And, and then he just sits down, and it's quite a protracted scene. And the sheriff makes a point of saying to him, Thanks. I know you could have, you know, I know you could have caused a lot of damage and hurt those men. They're just drunk. Thanks for dealing with that with such grace. And it's like a nice scene, right? It's actually like a like, okay. He did actually like hold back then, and then he goes to walk out of the pub. He's like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna leave now. We're gonna go home. And he walks, and as he looks at this group of people, and they not even do anything, they just look at him. It's a really awkward cut, and all of a sudden they're just facing off on the dance floor for like a really clumsy fight. What? So it's almost like the previous scene didn't need to happen. Like, and I think they've obviously made this film, and it's like they watched it back in the edit and thought there's not enough action in this, and they've just literally inserted a scene, like inserted a really clunky fight scene that was originally taken out. Because it, why have that whole scene about him reining in his, mm. you know, his temper when he just has a fight for no real reason anyway in the same situation <laughs> with the same people? So yeah, it's just bizarre. It's not very good, and it's boring. Is it as good as Angel Town? There was more. There was more action in Angel Town. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, this is literally just leading up to the inevitable sort of stand standoff between the town and his old colleagues at the end. I'd also like to point out a flaw in his moral code, mm. where at the start he says to Eric Roberts, "I want to leave. These guys are just murderers," you know. And I'm like, "Yeah, you are." So in your ideal world, then you would just it would be okay to go around just killing people as long as they're naughty. <laughs> which is the Samuel L. Jackson way of doing things. But when mm. they kill the family, he's like, I don't like this, I'm leaving. But he's not stopping them. He's just mm. like leaving them to it. So he comes across as this wholesome character. I'm like, no, you were still a hired killer. You were yeah. still a hired killer. And uh, yeah, and you would have been okay if they said, okay, we won't shoot any more kids. And he's like, right, okay, I'm in then, that's fine. Um, so yeah, TNT, not, it's not worth a watch at all. Okay. Where, I take it that's on Prime. You know, you know it's on Prime. Amazon doing doing the Lord's work. Um, <laughs> Amazon signing the big deals. Uh, yeah. So um, I guess that Amazon must have like deals with, I mean, obviously they have a deal with like PM Entertainment. And that's why so many of those movies are on there. Oh, you must this, get... is, this is made by them. Oh, of course it is. Of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah. Yeah.
the spiritual successor to canon. When I saw the name come up at the start of the film, I, I watched this as I was wrapping Christmas presents, and it was yeah. perfect for that, because I could miss 10 minutes of the time and know exactly what was going on. It, 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 you breathe a sigh of relief when you see that come up. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, when you see the logo come up, I don't even think they have a logo, it's just typed. <laughs> it's just text on the screen. Just army font. <laughs> yeah. um, right then, let's move on to I watched Oblivion, which is on... Netflix and Prime it's all over the place so um so this is a science fiction movie a science fiction action movie from 2013 and it's a bit of a brain teaser um so the year is 2077 and aliens have already attacked earth wiped out humanity and left the earth desolate and the humans have apparently fled to titan uh, moon to live um, some humans have stayed behind to basically suck all the water at the oceans to transport to the new world. The the water machines are maintained by Tom Cruise and uh, his partner, um, played by Andrea Riseborough, and they have the help of these automated, heavily armed drones. Um, and their work is overseen by an like an eye in the sky called the Tet. Um, so Cruz's character goes around fixing the drones so they can keep the water extraction going. And meanwhile, they're under threat from what appears to be the remnants of this alien army who are just scuttling around on Earth. Um, but then a spacecraft crash lands on Earth and Tom Cruise's character discovers that there's more to the aliens than meets the eye. And he may not be the only, they may not be the only humans left on the planet. So this is kind of sort of an auteur piece by... Joseph Kaczynski, who um, he he co-wrote the graphic novel, which was never finished as far as I know, but it's clearly a passion project for him. And because Joseph Kaczynski, he's, he's an exceptional, exceptional technical director and he does have a lot of style and he he puts the money on the screen, if you know what I mean. Um, mm. uh, but I, I feel that he does it without sacrificing character or drama, just as empty spectacle. Um, like there's some cool little details in this film. Apparently, the in the uh, scenes in the tower where Tom Cruise and Andrew Riseborough hang out, like the background in the tower, it wasn't added with CGI. It was an actual digital painting in the background, so so that the actors could become like immersed on set. So that was quite a nice little detail. Um, I find Oblivion to be a very rewatchable film, although part of me suspects that's because it takes more than one watch to work out the plot. And I, I think this is a criticism because I swear that there's a simpler way that this story could have been told, but I haven't really pieced it together for myself, but it is convoluted and there are a great stretches of exposition plus voiceover to explain everything. And I do, I know without giving too much away, I know that Duncan Jones did mock the film for borrowing from moon, but I think it does its own thing enough of its own thing anyway but yeah there is this general problem with a lot of modern films especially science fiction where you've got a situation where it takes an hour to establish the backstory and the rules of the universe before the real story can actually start and for this perhaps i blame christopher nolan i'm not sure but uh yeah the action is really nicely handled and pretty clear and it's complemented by really good music by Joseph Trapanese, um, well, Joseph Trapanese worked with Daft Punk on Tron Legacy, which was Kaczynski's previous film, and uh, and he works with M83 here, so it's another, like, B 
big name electronic composer and the music's really cool andrea riseber is really really good in this really well cast even though she definitely wasn't the first choice but she's really good i'm not so sure about olga korolenko who i think is a decent actor but i th- she looks confused in this film i know her character is meant to be confused but i th- she looks more like she's confused by the script to be honest um <laughs> But uh, yeah, so Kaczynski made Tron Legacy and he also made Only the Brave uh, more recently, which was, which were, they're very different films. You know, the films you're making are very different because like, Tron Legacy is obviously very effects heavy, like sci-fi action. And then you've got Only the Brave, which is much more grounded. It's about firefighters and yeah, very different, very good. Um, I think he's a really interesting director and I'm looking forward to Top Gun Maverick, which is um, his next film with Mr. Yeah, Cruz, fun- of course. Funnily enough, I was um, not looking at Oblivion, but because I, I, I'd watched that, that's one of the few films I saw in the cinema in the last like fifteen years. But I also um, noticed, uh, what was it called? Live, Die, Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow, which I know had both titles, and now they've just combined them. <laughs> but yeah. I almost watched that the other day, but I didn't. I did watch I, that the other day, and I don't know why I haven't got it on my list, frankly, because it's so good. <laughs> I'll have to talk at length about it next time. <laughs> That's fine. That's absolutely fine. Um, I did watch, however, Triple X Return of Xander Cage starring Vin Diesel. Um, and I, I have never seen a Triple X. Have you, sorry, what were going to say then? Uh, no, just... Uh, you, so you've gone straight into a sequel. I presume this is a sequel. This is the... There was. I think this is the fourth? No, third or fourth film? Because there was Triple X and then there was one where Ice-T played the titular Triple X... Then he returned, yeah. and now they're making a yeah. I think it's Triple X. Hang on, sequel. Let me have a look here. Fourth film. So yeah, this is uh, this is the so, third. So I watched eleven Star Wars films back to back, and then six Rocky films, and you just jumped straight into number four. <laughs> That's what it needs. <laughs> um, oh, hang on. There's Triple X. No, no. This is the third installment. Sorry, I've I left into the third film. I feel like um, you're missing out on the greater arc of this story. Well, I must. I might watch the original Triple X. Um, but my thoughts on this film for, for a start, right? Vin Diesel, I realize when he talks, he's got three speeds, right? There's the sexy, chocolatey, deep voice that he basically did throughout all of the um, uh, Chronicles of Riddick films and in the games. Yes. Then when he talks normally, he sounds like a middle aged woman who's a heavy smoker. And then when he shouts, he sounds like an old man with a load of custard at the back of his throat. So it's like every time he talks, so oh, which voice am I going to hear? And uh, it's it's always it's always a mystery. This I'm not I don't care about the plot for this film. It's just an excuse for them to bring Vin Diesel back and get some sort of MacGuffin from Tony Collette, who is hamming it up in this film. If you watch this film and did a shot of tequila every time she rolled her eyes, you would be absolutely battered. She's just constantly like, rolling her eyes and like as if she's like really uninterested in what's going on, and yet she's at the heart of it. Um, it's just an excuse. It's a nice cast. It's a nice, like, sort of worldly cast um, mm. with Donnie Yen, Tony Jaa, Ruby Rose. Yes. You've got Australians, uh, Asians, Indians, Wicked, all, all nice and inclusive. Hang on. So he's... But Tony Jaa, is he wasted in this like he is in so many other... Well, this is one of the main problems, right? So this got mixed reviews from critics. 346 million worldwide box office against a budget of 85 million. The problem with this, and I'm assuming it's not... I don't know what the first XXX was like, but this is more about a team. So what happens is, whilst it's not boring, whenever there's a action sequence, you've got 
at least six or seven people involved in it from the good guys team and it cuts between them and it does a good job of cutting between them so you can understand what's going on but it's just so diluted so you don't get a sense of you get you see like um i don't know a look his team like getting in a gunfight and it's very much they shoot the other people shoot they shoot the other people shoot and then you'll see donnie yen in a fight with someone tony jana fight with someone and vin diesel taking off against the main bad guy in like a motorbike chase or whatever and it's quite kinetic and energetic but after a while it's just you think i wouldn't mind if this was just a bit more focused mm-hmm. um because the, the opening sequence where he like snow sn- skis on skis through a forest like a, a like a tropical forest effectively down a mountainside and then gets on a skateboard and goes down an entire mountain it's like quite cool um mm-hmm. but then of course ev- that's just nice sweeping shots of him one person doing one thing but then it gets really mixy later on when it's cut in between his entire team doing things it's also one of these films where there doesn't appear to be any real risk people like literally being hit by cars and shot in the guts and getting up with no no Mm. problems um and yeah it's it's fine it's very much a throwaway action film like i can imagine if i watch this and the first one and the second one i'd probably mix them all up in my mind also what i've noticed as well and i've seen his name a few times in the last few films i've watched where the music has irritated me brian tyler brian mm. tyler's treated electronic like rock heavy Ooh. beat soundtracks really irritating and really dated yeah that's not good is it like no. it's when I think it's when you get like orchestral composers like who who tend to score films in a very like classical Hollywood way when they when they start meddling with electronic sounds and stuff and beats it's like oh it just sounds like it's real like granddad at the disco stuff it's like it just sounds bad and it instantly yeah. sounds dated if you're going to do that get get an actual electronic artist or someone to step in you know that's why it works so well in like tron legacy as we mentioned earlier getting daft punk in to do that stuff because it sounds cool and it doesn't date in the same way but yeah like like i mentioned the midnight sky in fact again you've got like a classical composer trying out electronic textures and it sounds awful it just sounds bad it's just a mix of, of electronic music orchestral stuff and especially like guitar rock when it just comes in with like guitar bands, it just sounds really cheesy and it's yeah, painful. Really, really pleasing painful. no one with that at all. Like, <laughs> yeah. like everyone's going to be disappointed. Um, but yeah, it's but not it a bad film. It's fans at X, Or are right, they well, just Vin Diesel fans? I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's all about, I guess it initially started off with like my knowledge of the first one is that he, he's an extreme sports enthusiast and he yeah. gets thrown at these ridiculous stunts, which is fine. But of course now they're like a crack sort of off-grid military team effectively. And you're like, well, you know, I don't know. I'd rather have just be more focused and like based on set pieces as opposed to just constant action, which is just chopped up into smaller chunks. It wasn't boring. And it's directed by DJ Caruso, who also did Taken Lives. And this is definitely a better film than Taken Lives. He was also, DJ Caruso was also a producer on 1991's um, Michael J. Fox and James Woods outing The Hard Way, which one of our listeners, he shall remain unknown, Sexy Dave, wants us to watch. But if anyone knows where we can see The Hard Way, let us know, by the way. Sexy Dave. Full name, Sexual Dave. <laughs> sexual um... Dave, hold on, The Hard Way. <laughs> um... So are you going to watch the first two? Yeah, I will because I watched um, 
I I like Ice T, although I've never actually seen him in a good film. Uh, apart from sorry, not Ice. It's not Ice, ice T, is cube? it? Is it Ice Cube? Sorry, yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've, I've never seen him in a good film beyond the original Friday, which even then was only good for like half of it. So mm. I will watch it. I, I might watch the first. I'll watch it in order now. I mean, I know what happens at the the culmination of this. So that's fine. Okay. Um, and that's what what's how what channel is that on? That was on Netflix. Yeah. Are they all on Netflix, or is it one of those things where you get like the sequel? I hope they are. I haven't looked, but I, I will find out for next uh, the next okay. episode. Good. Okay. Um, well, I'll move on to a film called Dragon Eyes, which is on Prime. Um, I you, I don't know whether you've seen this, but it is billed as a Jean Claude Van Damme action movie whether that turns out to be true we'll soon find out so it's a it's made in 2012 um i've never suppose this, this was his, very much his his period of just making total nonsense well well you'd be surprised um no you won't be surprised it's directed <laughs> by john it's directed by john hyams who made universal soldier Re- regeneration mm. and day of reckoning and it's pretty dismal stuff um so this um, Asian guy, he comes out of prison. Uh, the Asian guy called Ryan Hong, played by a guy called Kung, Kung Lee, I, I guess is how you pronounce it. He's a Vietnamese actor. I've seen him, uh, and he's in, like, Pandorum. I, he plays martial law in Tekken as well. I don't think he's been in that much. He's a martial artist. He's, like, a martial artist by trade. Anyway, so he comes out of prison, and clearly he's the star of this film by the way um he comes out of prison rents an apartment from a complete burner uh there are mexican gangsters and dealers roaming the streets he beats them up um you get one pretty cool fight scene um but it's the only one um and yeah so he he gets into hot water with these mexican gangsters and after that it becomes the classic like Yojimbo slash fistful of dollars story of the loner guy playing the gangs off each other. Um, Peter Weller plays the Mr. V, the kind of the the meta boss who presides over all the gangs in the neighborhood. And clearly he wants Ryan dead um, because he's messing up his business, messing up the balance. So he sends his goons in. So everyone's after this guy. Um, you might be wondering where Jean-Claude Van Damme comes into this. Well, he is featured in a series of flashbacks. Uh, <laughs> he, he isn't actually in, he doesn't interact with anyone except Ryan himself because he was his mentor in prison. So you just see them, a few montages of them in prison. Um, and Jean-Claude Van Damme says things like, if you get shot, it's only because you didn't understand the man that shot you apparently so here you go i've got a feeling i have seen this but i have no recollection of it that's because it's not very good um it's it's confusingly plotted actually because it keeps cutting back to ryan in jail with john claude van damme but then but then he's in the present day he's arrested and goes to jail as well so it's really weird <laughs> he gets imprisoned in the past and in the present so that was confusing um, oh, and on top of that, you have these completely separate flashbacks where Ryan seems to witness his girlfriend being shot or something. It's bizarre. Like, how it's, it should be such a simple story. Like, the Yojimbo tale is such a simple story of someone going into a town, 
um, causing the gangs to fight each other and coming out having profited. That was it. But they somehow managed to mess up the storytelling on multiple levels <laughs> and in multiple timelines. Um, yeah. It has Dutch angle freeze frames and subtitles to introduce characters. This oh, is dear. that we do not like. It's... No. <laughs> um, it has the heaviest filter I've ever seen in a film. It looks like the city is soaked in vinegar. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like it's broad daylight and it's brown. It's preposterous. The cover All of the, the film hints to this, by the way. I'm looking at the cover now. <laughs> All of the locations look like it's filmed in some ex-communist state. I don't know, probably Romania. Who knows? It's got really grimy, crumbling walls. There's no police anywhere. And Peter, uh, Peter Weller um, controls everything like a South American warlord. So it's, it's weird. Um, the editing is really horrible throughout. There's constant, you know, in action scenes, new, newish, modern action movies where you get that editing style where it's like they'll be having a fight and it'll have like a, uh, a so a slow fast slow motion where it will like it will be fighting normally then it'll go into slow motion then speed up a bit and go back into slow motion um and there's even like you get these vinyl slip sound effects as over the top oh, of this it's like, like what is happening that kind um, of thing so the, yeah so the action scenes they're just designed to look cool not to tell a story through action so and there's never a moment when like the main guy is under any threat whatsoever regardless of the armies coming to get him. And there's, of course, you get these really tiresome sub-Tarantino, sub-Guy Ritchie, frankly, digressions where you'll have, like, two loser, druggy characters getting high and arguing, and it's just like, get on with it. Stop this. This doesn't add any text to the film. Um, it's so, it, was, it was filmed yeah. in Baton Rouge, by the way. Right, okay. Well, probably is quite run down then, probably. Um, yeah, the the... The stylized nature of the filmmaking and the complete disregard for reality uh, and all of the goofy, incompetent goons, uh, it com that all that combines with this supposedly gritty street-level setting, which just makes the whole thing seem really juvenile, um, like a real, like a teenager script or something. It's just cringeworthy. And frankly, it's, I mean, I know it's got Jean-Claude Van Damme's name on it, and I, Fine, he's not in the film. He's barely in the film. That's fine. But it's not even attempting to emulate those films or the charm of those films because it occurred to me that what was appealing about Jean-Claude Van Damme at his height in the late 80s, early 90s was that they always had this, the best ones always had this kind of warmth and humanity that elevated them. Like if you think about, I mean, Bloodsport had the whole bromance aspect of it and AWOL, absent without leave, had the family drama angle. And then you had Double Impact, which had the sibling comedy part. And they they took what was quite grim subject matter and made it much more enjoyable and much more relatable. But this is just grim, whilst also at the same time being utterly frivolous. And it has this really mean-spirited sense of humour. And it's terrible. That is Dragon Eyes. Which... You you should not watch uh, uh, Amazon Prime by any chance. Of course it is. You you just said that um, the height of his career was the late eighties to the early nineties, right? But I know for a fact that Knockoff, where he spends the whole film <laughs> looking for a pair of dodgy trousers, was in the mid nineties, and so was The Quest with Roger Moore. His only directorial <laughs> outing. So 
<laughs> That's true. That was it. Was remiss of me to say that. Um, I yeah, the whole thing, everything from Legionnaire onwards. I just think, man, am I going to watch this or am I not going to watch it? Yeah. That's the problem. Is it's not like um, you know they're going to be just boring. That's the problem with a lot yeah. of these films. They're just very boring. Set it you know, like you know they're going to be set in one location. And it's just going to be like lots of dialogue. And you think that's not what I want from a John claude Van Damme film. Yeah. And it doesn't even have enjoyable action or anything. And But it's that last thing I was mentioning how I, I accept that a film, if you see John claudes name or, um, or any old kind of action stars name on, on one of these films, you know, they're not going to be kicking ass in the same way they used to. No. Um, but w- you'd want it to at least be of a similar kind of nature, a similar tone, um, you know, not like a kind of, flat, serious tone. Yeah, not not like, basically not like this, <laughs> which is just really just unpleasant, really juvenile, and all its attempts to be cool with its sense of style are utterly just cringeworthy. It's terrible. This is a bit of a two-minute, really. This is Shaft, not that one. This is the 2019 film as opposed to the 2000 film. Um, and it stars Richard Roundtree, Samuel Jackson, and Jesse T. Usher, who I know from his work on The Boys on Amazon. And I like. Um, just a really quick one, really. This, is, this has got amazing music. It's just like 70s wah-wah and like sort of disco soundtrack. Absolutely fine. And it's, I assume, I've never seen the 2000 film, but it's basically... Samuel Jackson as like a well, he's obviously like seventy now. Apparently he's only six years younger than Richard Roundtree, um, but all he plays obviously like his son. So it's three yeah. generations of Shaft, and the oh. film is effectively um, Samuel Jackson finding out that Jesse T. Escher is his son, and he's a bit of a, a preppy kind of IT nerd who dresses in clothes from Gap, and it's them bickering and yet bonding. It's a very basic film, and it does exactly what you think it's going to do, but. I just realised the title, the subtitle, well, the slogan is uh, "more shaft than you can handle." So that's a that's a dick mm. joke. That is, mm-hmm. um, it is. It says you received mixed reviews and underperformed, but it is fun. And uh, once again, the same as the Hitman's Bodyguard. After watching that, I watched this because I just wanted to watch Samuel L. Jackson swearing and like mm. saying cool one-liners. And again, that is what I got. So <laughs> I I am happy with it. And yeah, it's uh, it is quite nice how they, not nice but fun how the generational differences between him and Jesse T. Escher play out. And it sort of works because obviously Samuel Jackson is being cool and saying cool things and swearing all the time and just drinking and shagging. But then Jesse T. Escher is kind of like, eh, it's not really like that anymore. So he, he is very much the other viewer looking at the film thinking, is that a dated way to look at women? So it <laughs> sort of gets away with it. Although there are some moments I thought, yes, um, one of the bits in this film that was a bit awkward was Jesse Tiesha is obviously like a very fit, handsome and like well-dressed slim young man. And mm. Samuel Jackson is wearing, has got a bit of a belly, a big ass and <laughs> is wearing like tight turtlenecks all the time and, and, and taking the piss out of his son's dress sense. And it's like, Meh. I think taking a picture and simply turning the phone around to show him what he looks like would be enough to put a stop to that conversation. So, yeah, it's that's quite funny. But no, it's just a fun film. It's just a fun action film with some funky music and uh, funny one-liners. It's a, it is a bit strange having like the new Shaft character be sort of like quite judgmental about the previous generations. 
because I can understand it almost like highlights why it is that you don't have movies like this anymore. If you know what I mean, it's like yeah. it's a movie about the fact that these movies shouldn't be made now. <laughs> You know? Yeah, and I think that's the way of getting around it, isn't it? Right. It's like okay. using the same script, the same jokes, but having someone basically rolling their eyes and saying, well, you silly Billy, is okay. And yeah, and at the end, the way that, um, well, it's not really a spoiler, but the way that he, ev- he eventually sort of learns to respect and fall into his father's ways of working, they're like, oh, okay. So it's okay then, isn't okay. it? Right. Um, but no, it's, it's fun for what it is. I mean, I didn't take it seriously at all, but uh, it yeah. is very dated. Where is that available? That was on Netflix. Okay. Uh, how many more have you got? Because I've got two more myself. I have got one, two, three, four more. Oh, yeah. You better crack on with another one then, don't you? Sure. Okay, then I will talk about... Uh, I'm trying to work out which one this is. Intruder, which is a 1989 film, although it looks far earlier. And this is a horror film um, that uh, has... Oh, of course, it's taking me to some film from... Oh, come on. You know, I want the 80s one. It's really weird, because I've never heard about this. And even then, typing in Intruder, uh, the Intruder on IMDb, two other films come up before this. But I'm going to read out the people who are involved in this film, right? It's directed by Scott Spiegel, who's done a lot of stuff. It's r- written and... Um, produced by Lawrence Bender and the stars in it are Sam Raimi and Ted Raimi so and Bruce Campbell rocks up as a cameo so it's not it's not like some like crap 80s throwaway kind of thing this is like this is like the early parts of like a lot of people's careers but I've never heard it before I've never heard of it um have you, is this something you're familiar with Intruder I, I mean I, I've heard of it but I just kind of because it hasn't doesn't have any particular uh, renown i guess i've just never sorted out i'm hoping that you're going to be gushing over this and it's going to be another ninth configuration where i literally order it as (laughs) it's not not that level it is it is just a sort of teen slasher and also i'm looking at the cover for the first time and the cover literally gives away who the killer is it the picture is effectively of nothing but the killer and you can see who it is um so if you if you want that level of mystery don't ever look at the cover just just put it on with your eyes shut um it the whole film is based around a sort of walmart-esque um shot like a supermarket that's closed down for the night as they do a stock take and stuff and it's eight eight kids and the two managers and it they they hassled by the ex-boyfriend who's a real tosser of one of the sort of cashiers and they and you it's led the start of the film leads you to believe he is the one that's killing them but obviously there's more to it than that um and it's just effectively them being picked off by a killer in different ways and it's quite gory it's quite bloody but also it's got a sense of humor it's got that kind of sam raimi slapstick sense of humor which does differentiate it from other films of this ilk i will say as well that the, the the way it's directed is is really weird because you know mm. how when we watch a lot of these like early 80s slashes and it's awful dialogue like oh come on brad you know i don't want you to put your hands down my pants and then he'll say oh come on you know you yes. want it really and then someone will just set their bins on fire um the, uh, it's and it's like really static this is actually quite funky there's a lot of not so much dutch angles but like there's a scene where a, a telephone is picked up in the store and then the camera cuts to as if we're looking through the dials at at the person on the phone or there'll be some like 
funky overhead shots or shots from like um behind a tin sort of thing it's just a bit more um there's a bit more movement in in the cinematography mm. that you would normally find in these sorts of films which does give it a bit of a personality so there's a bit death... more style it sounds a bit influenced by sam raimi himself like because he's yes. got he's quite stylistically extravagant isn't he yeah and quite quirky and there's always like a sort of tongue-in-cheek sensibility to everything in his films I'm just looking at uh, the, the Scott Spiegel. Is, looks like he's more known as an actor than a director, but I'm just looking at uh, ho- he, did, oh, he did Hostel Part 3 from Dust Till Dawn 2. He's only done a few films. It looks like he did a lot of stuff in the 70s and 80s, uh, more so than now. But um, I would be interested in watching more of his films because the, the, it's quite gory. Um, the teenagers act as you'd expect. Ted Raimi in this film, and obviously Sam Raimi are in it, Ted Raimi's character in this is like the butcher in this sort of delicatessen part. And he is listening to a Walkman and he is listening to the same song for the entire duration of the film. Every time it cuts to him, we can hear what he's listening to. And it's like, and that's it. Every time it comes back to him an hour later, you know, just what's on that cassette. Like you have turned it over. My God. Um, yeah, it's quite gory. There's some fun kills and there's a real, there's like a quality to to the, to how it's made, and the the kills are quite gory, and it's got a sort of tongue in cheek sensibility to it. So it's a good forgotten little horror gem from the uh, from mm. the late eighties. I assumed it was like eighty four, but it is yeah. eighty nine. Well, I haven't ordered it straight away, but I've definitely I've definitely added it to the basket on Amazon. So mm. we'll see. But yeah, that sounds really intriguing. Um, yeah, and it sounds like a good combination of elements as well, because what uh, what I don't like about older horror films is is if they don't have a sense of humour, and also if they are kind of styleless. But it sounds like those bits are because that was what kind of set apart people like Sam Raimi in, in the first place, wasn't it? With Evil Dead, that it had a sense of style, it had a sense of humour in a time when really a lot of these films were pretty grim grim slashes yeah it's yeah. like obviously the way that they, they're killed is is uh, all based around the supermarket but yeah even when they're just dialogues dialogue scenes taking place it's like mm. the camera's being interesting so yes. it's never boring and flat good right um where did you watch that again that was on prime <laughs> Also on Prime is a film called Where Have All the People Gone? Which isn't a very good title. No, it's not. This is a a TV movie from 1974 starring Peter Graves uh, of Mission Impossible fame. Mission Impossible and, of course, he's the pilot in Airplane as well. Um, Yeah, so he's quite distinctive looking. Anyway, he plays a father. He, He takes his family to the mountains for a hiking trip um his wife and their mother uh go she goes off elsewhere and meanwhile him and his son and daughter who are teenagers they they go into this cave system um to explore meanwhile this solar flare uh flashes in the sky wiping out 99 of the human population um, so the family are in the caves, so they survive and they come out and realize that uh, something's gone horribly wrong. Um, so it's basically them wandering through an empty landscape uh, through 
empty towns, scavenging food, meeting survivors, trying to make their way to the coast to hopefully uh, meet up with the mother character again. Um, there's one idea in this which I realised that Night of the Comet lifted wholesale, and that is that all of the people affected by the solar flare, obviously dead, they're just a pile of clothes and they've been turned to dust inside them. So that was interesting. It's it. So it's a post-apocalyptic film, really. It is a far cry from Mad Max. I mean, this is this is a very genial post-apocalypse. I mean, most of the people they encounter are just perfectly agreeable, nice people. And <laughs> the main threat really is rabid dogs. There's a lot of rabid dog scenes and and really the main kind of drama is theorizing what happened keeping sane minor problem solving stuff it's actually quite realistic in that way that's probably what it really would look like um there's there's one really irritating woman in it who is basically the it's the woman she's she's basically playing the character that the woman played in night of the living dead where she's totally hysterical just constantly screaming all the time in fact all of the women in the film are hysterical this was made in the 70s. Um, this is where I wanted to mention the transfer quality because on Prime, oh my God, the transfer quality of this, it's staggering. There are literal VHS lines sometimes. Um, and you can see where it's been edited to cut out adverts as well. Uh, it's amazing. It's And the, the picture quality is staggering. It's so low. It's It's so bad. But it kind of adds a certain mysterious charm to it, really um because there are some fairly creepy moments like when the family enter this sort of desolate town and they're driving through the empty streets and on the soundtrack the on the soundtrack is overlaid sort of like the sounds of what used to be there sort of like cars and children laughing and trains but but obviously it's just echoes of what used to be there so it's like really creepily added on the soundtrack afterwards it's quite cool um hmm. But it's pretty cheap and cheerful. Um, mostly, it's 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 interesting, really, only as uh, only to see where other post-apocalypse films may have got their ideas, really. Um, but ultimately, it's, it's about a father trying to keep his family together in the face of tragedy, really. So it's pretty simplistic, but somewhat atmospheric, I'd say, and it is pleasingly dark. But only up to a point because the ending, oh my God, is just preposterously optimistic and has this outrageous, cringing family values message suddenly at the end, which is just so out of step with the rest of the film. Um, but quite amusing anyway to have such an obvious, like, just message at the end. It, it reeks of having had its ending changed. Imagine threads and then suddenly everything turns out to be okay. It's, yeah. It's, it's is it an, as awful a message uh, as at the end of that film I watched Michael where at the end it said mm. apparently um, if you're adopted you're going to be a rapist and a serial killer <laughs> it's of that it's that level of bluntness he's literally making a speech to some another character and it's it, it's just yeah it reeks what, what, of someone coming along a producer coming along and saying well we can't put this on TV it's too it's too dark and grim you need to add this at the end and completely change the whole tone of the picture. Of, anyway, of well, yeah, but, your, that also is a title with a question mark in it, which I know we both love as well. <laughs> Although I'm pretty sure when it comes up on the screen, 
it doesn't have the question mark, which is a bit confusing. So it's like it's not it's not where have all the people gone? It's more where have all the people gone? <laughs> Hang on, we we can do this, right? So, like, um, if you go, do, do, keep doing that, keep doing that for a second. Where have all the people gone? <laughs> you can loop that. Oh my for God, five it's minutes. like a, yeah. Let's put a vocoder <laughs> on that. Bob's your uncle. It's yeah. it is seventy minutes long, so. <laughs> so it's worth the watch just as a real oddity, apart from anything. Uh, yeah. And uh, Peter Graves is always good, but yeah, it's such an oddity that it's worth watching just on that basis. And the um, fact that it's short. And I'm guessing that's on Prime, Rupert. <laughs> it's never been more on Prime. <laughs> I know we've only got like we're like 20 minutes left because we both have to be done. But um, I, I'm going to do this one next because it's one I, I wanted to talk about. Uh, it's called the Mutilator, um, 1984 oh, American slasher You've seen this. So. Uh, and it is set, it's a group of, well, they say it's a group of uh, horny, drunk teenagers on an island being attacked by someone. Or is it a load of men in their 40s and a load of girls in their late teens supposedly going out? So the film is, the, the introduction of this film is astonishing. It shows a woman like baking a cake in a kitchen in the most 80s kitchen I've ever seen. And it's the father's birthday, but he's off hunting. And the boy as a birthday present to his dad, wants to clean all of his guns. So, of course, he's cleaning one of the guns, one of the many rifles that apparently are kept fully loaded and cocked, ready to fire in a gun cabinet near the front door. And he accidentally shoots his mother in the back and kills her. And then the father comes in and hits the boy in the face and then just starts, like, feeding bourbon to the corpse of the mother. You're like, okay. Anyway, it cuts forward. Things escalate pretty quickly there, don't they? It cuts forward, it says like 20 years later, but I've looked at Matt Mittler. It skipped forward 40 years, didn't it? <laughs> um, and it's him supposedly like a university student going going to his father's cabin. And he's constantly talking about how his dad's a big hunter. Now he's a bit a little bit kooky. And of course, the father, it's no, it's no mystery, is the killer. So his father waited, well, as they say 20, really 40 years to suddenly completely loses mind to think actually i'm going to kill my son for killing my wife um you know almost a quarter of a century ago bizarre plot but they go to they stop on the way this group of like six i'll say kids to get like a load of beer to get battered up in this cabin this father's hunting cabin on this island and they buy 12 cans of beer so that's two each for a full weekend of like debauchery well you drink that on the way up um, so, and that's if you're driving. It's just driving lager. <laughs> yeah, I got some driving lager on the way there. So, it, it kicks off pretty quickly. You've got, you know, you've got the two of the girls are sort of um, virginal, or you know, nicey, nicey girls, and then you've got one jokey kid who's one of the most irritating characters in the film I've ever seen. There's a point in this film where he takes off his shirt, and even his chest here is irritating. It's like this stupid curly mass um and it's there's a guy in it as well clearly in his mid-40s just like this floppy blonde hair and you know got two voices behind him just like hooking up with a 16 year old girl the murders are quite gory in this yeah um they're quite gory and but there are two it's two they piss around too much in the film, it's not snappy enough. It's only like 85 minutes long, but the the scenes where they're just like playing in a pool or they're just going for walks on the beach and messing around, it's it feels like they go on forever. 
mm. then you get like a flash of violence <laughs> my third album yeah. um there's also a scene in this the, the the scenes cut between night and day it's supposed to all take place over one evening but there are scenes where people are like we'll walk into a garage and it's blazing sunlight behind them and then like they'll walk in look around for two minutes and walk out it's pitch black there's a scene specifically where they play blind man's buff which is effectively hide and seek and they're supposed to be feeling their way around and you can see it is piercing sunlight coming through the windows and they're like well look where are you where are you guys and it's like it's so bright in there it's so bright you may as well put sunglasses on so that was quite funny um yeah and the whole there's an extended sequence where the first two people who get killed go missing and there's it feels like it goes on for three weeks where they're saying i wonder where they are they should we go look for them are they back yet it's like balls to them balls to them honestly let's move on so it's gory and it's silly but it it's oddly boring for like a long of the running time that's yes uh that was that's pretty much my takeaway from it as well. I remember enjoying the kills, but honestly, everything else was just so generic. And it was, yeah, slow. It's like, I'm not into this. It's yeah. not. It, it didn't. No. I mean, if you're going to be, if you're going to be slow um, and take your time over that stuff, then it's got to be better written. It's got to, there's got to be something else to it. You know, it's got to be a better yeah. script. There's got to be better characterization. Because some films do that, some slashes do that. If you watch the original Black Christmas, for example, I mean that that's got very little in the way of kills in it, but it's got good writing and characterization, so it's fine. You can enjoy the movie without the kills, but in this, it really is just the kills. Yeah, and also I thought there would be like an extra layer or something because it's obviously his dad. Yes, and then and then a point where. Like it feels like about an hour into the film, where the son, my son, he's obviously like ten years younger than him in real life, comes face to face with the killer. And he's like, "Dad," as if it's a shock, but it's clearly him yeah. from the start. That's yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you think about something like Sleepaway Camp, um, which is brilliant and everyone should see it, but that's a slasher where the kind of backstory is is there, but it it's genuinely like it it's only revealed later on and it's a genuine shock there's it seems a bit weird to put it all up front and then make out like the characters shocked and it's like well they might be shocked but we're not we've 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 gone over this in our heads hours ago <laughs> yeah when they were bickering and just like sipping their lagers because they've got to make one can of fosters last three weeks oh my god it'd be so flat and warm by the time they finish it um <laughs> that is presumably on Prime. Yes, yes, yes. Is it? Um, it's not Shudder, is it, by any chance, or is it just literally Prime? Uh, do you know, it might be Shudder because we've got a uh, we've paid for it for a couple of months, I think. And I, yeah, yeah, I should have checked that. Yeah, it's on Prime slash Shudder. Okay. Uh, well, I my final film this week is a film called Real Steel, uh, which is on Prime, and. This is a film which stars Hugh Jackman, uh, set in the nearest future. Uh, so Hugh Jackman plays Charlie, who's a he's a he's a robot boxing tra- um, trainer slash engineer. He's not a robot. He is, but he's engineers uh, and trains robot boxers. So this is a world where there's this whole subculture of boxing robots, basically. Um, and he's out of money uh he's down and out so he literally sells 
custody of his own child to his sister-in-law just so he can buy a new robot um because he has no interest in raising this child so he and she wants to look after him so her husband like pays 50 grand to him um so but while the sister goes on holiday charlie has has the kid anyway for a couple of weeks she has to look after him for a couple of weeks doesn't want him doesn't know what he's doing but i think we can see where this is going to go so he's going to have this kid for two weeks even though he doesn't want him so the the kid turns out to be a big boxing fan and he turns out to be quite useful he's got very good engineering skills and of course the relationship between dad and son develops as they're on the road um so Charlie, yeah, he's the dad. He's a genuine asshole. He gets by on luck and self-denial and wheeler dealing. And his son is streetwise, but also quite thoughtful. Anyway, so after some failed attempts to get back on the robot boxing circuit, they find they find this battered old robot in a junkyard. They call him Atom. He has a wonky eye. He has retro controls. Um, and it is, of course, a metaphor for the father-son relationship, really, because it's he's kind of broken, but he can be cleaned up to fight another day. So there's this um, there's this uh, world champion robot boxer called Zeus, all very flashy and technologically advanced. And Charlie and his son are going to work towards setting up this title fight. So it's basically the same setup as the original rocky or even rocky four i suppose it's rags versus riches it's like lo-fi versus technological um mastery um now i have a real soft spot for robot human buddy stories like um robot jocks jocks of course um i I really like bumblebee which is the only transformers film i've ever seen and i love it it's brilliant um there's a really appealing blue collar meets future tech vibe to real steel it's sort of high you know like they say about cyberpunk it's high tech meets low life and Mm -hmm. it's kind of like that um it just happens to be set in more rural locations in the deep south rather than some neon city so um the aesthetic is really bright and vibrant and warm and all the violence is robotic so it's kind of suitable for younger viewers. There's some really cool robot designs. There's, I really like this one called Twin Cities, which is it's a two-headed robot made of what looked like miniaturized glowing scrapers. That was kind of cool. Um, I mean, the robots themselves are kind of human-sized, like big human-sized, so they get in a proper ring and actually go at it. You see what I mean? Do any of them it was made... and kick themselves in the face? <laughs> Weirdly, yeah. One of them's just designed to do that. <laughs> like program that way <laughs> comedy robot just kicking itself repeatedly in the face um it's just made in 2011 but as a very 90s style and tone it's it's sort of glossy and uncomplicated and wholesome and the music is literally 90s a lot of the time it's got loads of like thunderous breakbeat and then there's an actual track by the crystal method from the mid 90s and that is married to this score by Danny Elfman which is occasionally it has like really dusty kind of country instrument instrumental rock and then other times just really sentimental um the script is efficient and it's very clever I found in concealing its exposition and world building because for example there's a scene where the dad and the son go scavenging in this junkyard for new parts so 
you get a scene of them like scavenging around. They're doing something on the screen. But meanwhile, uh, the dad is kind of giving a brief history of robot boxing. So it kind of fills in the world without having just people sitting down and having it explained to you. So it's quite clever that way. Um, I'm not quite clear on how the robots are controlled exactly because they they he can mimic movements and he can be voice commanded and there's a control box. So I think that part of it could have been a bit more elegantly handled. Um, and there's Evangeline Lilly is in this film as well, who is a pretty woman and she is sort of Charlie's on off girlfriend. She basically has nothing to do except she just seems her character just seems to wait around for him to come by and feel her up really. So, but they have really good chemistry, Hugh Jackman and Evangeline Lilly and they'd have pretty kids. So it's really, that's, that's cool. Um, maybe two hours is a bit much, but it didn't feel that long. So clearly not a problem. And it is sentimental. But I feel that it earns it because it's of its good nature and its good script and its good performances. And it, yeah, it's just general wholesomeness. It doesn't feel manipulative. You've it's, given um, me a... it's a good movie. So yeah, you've, you've given me from all you... That's your last movie, isn't it? It is. You've given me Silk 1 and 2, Where Have All the People Gone, Where Have All the People Gone, um, Bumblebee, and Real Steel, so that's nice. I, I am I do apologise for just sailing on to The Cold that's Light fun. of Day, not that one, that no, one. No. because this, is the, this isn't the one from 1996 with Richard E. Grant being miscast. This is one from 2012 with Henry Cavill being miscast. Um, he, he plays, Ooh. right, he is fresh off the set of the immortals where he was enormous and he is cast as a wall like a wall street the young wall street banker he is massive in this film and it's really drawn to it like there are scenes after scenes where he's got his he's got his top off and he's completely chiseled and he's yet just constantly overpowered by everyone in the film he, he just shouldn't have been cast in it so really quickly um because I, I know we're up against the clock a little bit um Henry Cavill is, yep, yeah, we'll show this Wall Street banker, and he flies out to Madrid to be with his parents, uh, his father, played by Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis in this film is constantly looking at his phone. Just, I assume it's just so he could, he's waiting for it to say, yeah, the check's cleared, and then he can just stop acting. Because he, oh my God, he's just, this. you can see him waiting to be killed off 10 minutes in so he can just go home and start staring at his wall again. And it's, so they're on a boat. Uh, he has a bit of a, an argument. I see he has an argument. He's on this boat with his family, um, obviously his dad and stuff. And he gets a message saying that his, business is going bankrupt and he instead of just saying i'm gonna go home and like try to sort this out his parents kind of guilt him into staying there and it's like no that's a really good reason he's obviously distanced from his parents but it's like if i was on holiday in madrid on a boat with my parents that i didn't really get on with and back home my business was that i built up was collapsing and they said oh we haven't seen you for a while though i'd say it was tough isn't it i'm going home um yeah, and they they kind of all, all, all like teasing him all the time, and he's like the butt of the jokes, and so it just seems like a really unpleasant place to be. Um, so he goes back. He has a bit of an argument. Go, swims to the shore. Swims to the shore with his stuff in a, like a, a sealed plastic bag on his back, and then the boat goes missing, and he finds out that his family been kidnapped, and he's trying to track them down. That is the bulk of the film. Because he is massive, and because he's miscast. It's a bizarre one because it clearly should be played by someone who's just a bit more scrawny and can can come across as a bit more panicked than Henry Cavill can. He is um, there's the only good things about this film 
are the stunts because they're so unbelievably harsh. Um, Sigourney Weaver plays someone who works with his father, who we we think initially, you know, is she honest? Is she with Henry? Is she against him? It's very clear she's against him, but she weirdly turns up and it's like purposefully ambiguous about whether she's just going to like, she's like, I'll come in the car and I'll explain everything to you. And you think, is she just going to shoot him in the head? Cause he's a loose end, but he, he leaps from trusting her to not trusting her about four or five times. It's really odd. Like when he first meets her, he just runs away. Then she rocks up again. Then he gets in the car, pretends he's going to spew and then runs away. And she's just saying to her henchman, I'll just let him go. It doesn't really matter. But then the next time they meet up, even though nothing in the plot has changed, she's like, right, we have to kill him. It's vital we kill him. But it's never really explained why. Because he's he's just running around Madrid, like not knowing what's going on. So mm. he could just be left to his own devices, if you know what I mean. Uh, almost like he didn't need to be in the film. So this, the, what I really want to talk about this is there's a sequence in this film where he is with someone who obviously turns out to be his sister because his father was having an affair. It has no implications on the plot whatsoever. It's just thrown in there to like make something very vaguely interesting happen in the middle of the film um he is on the top of a like a, a building and there's a load of satellite dishes and there's someone booting the door down behind them and they're like right we've got to go off this roof down to ground level and get out of here and he ties a like a thick like rubber cable around his sister's waist and sh- and lowers her down and then he like lets go because he gets shot at and then he just grabs it again and i after she's fallen about four floors because they're about eight floors up can you imagine if you had cable like a thin cable tied around your waist and you fell two floors and then it suddenly got yanked you would snap your spine and then he lets go again and she falls back and head first onto some cobblestones two floors down gets up totally fine and then he ties a cable around his waist and literally just leaps off the roof and he like so he's facing forward leaps off the roof and again it just yanks when he's about four floors down and he would be dead but no he's fine and then he cuts the cable and falls four floors bouncing off steel railings and lands face first on the floor gets up gets shot in the kidney and then gets on a bike and drives off and then someone pulls a bullet out bit of gaffer tape on it and he's fine for the rest of the film i thought it was such a harsh stunt and it was so obviously nasty i thought obviously this is going to have implications no not not at all um it's astonishing. It's an astonishing sequence. And then it's just your typical, you know, beating someone up to get information. Oh, what was his dad involved in? Blah, blah, blah. Boring. But it's worth it just for that one really harsh stunt. That's it. Jesus. So, is it... Am I going to be watching this? I think you should watch it because it's 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 just a bizarre film. It's It's not so much boring. You're just watching it trying to work out people's motivations and why people are in the film and why they're focusing on this sort of familial section when it it means nothing it just pads it out for 15 minutes miscasting is is it, it makes you really it really brings things into focus it makes you realize how well cast most films are because you don't notice these things i mean no. it's different to having a bad performance you can have someone who's suited for the role but just puts in a bad performance for example yeah. Jodie Foster in um, what was that movie? Um, Elysium. Oh, uh, Elysium, yeah. Yeah, where it's like, yes, powerful woman, um, quite scary. It makes sense for her to be in that role. She was terrible in it, but the point is, it it's not miscasting. Whereas when it's miscasting, it really just completely ruins the film. 
uh, or it can do anyway. Because weirdly, I, I was thinking when you were saying about the miscasting, I was thinking of um, Wall Street, Oliver Stone's film from the late 80s, and how uh, Charlie Sheen, well, I suppose that is partly because it was a, it was a poor performance, but he he is miscast. It, it That piece of casting ruins that film for me because I know that they tried to get Tom Cruise for it and didn't and he would have been absolutely perfect in the role and yet they got charlie sheen instead and he just isn't right for the role he doesn't have the gravitas at all but and that can you know that can just ruin a movie yeah it's a real pity it it does in this like there's bits in this where he's you know you'll bump into someone who's like you know see like your kind of size and then be wrestled to the ground by them and you're like what Mm. He's six I could have three. Henry Cavill. Oh yeah, and I'd handle Sigourney Weaver. So we could, if we ever, if we ever walk past him in the street and decide to mug them, I know which one I'm going for. Look out, Weaver. Um, yeah, it's 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 not like I said. It's, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about Galaxy of Terror threatening actresses through a podcast. Um, it's a niche market. Um, it's yeah, it's I'm not gonna talk about Galaxy of Terror. I'll leave that for next time. But um, okay. yeah. We, with the cold light of day, I think it's worth a watch just because I think it, it's definitely a sleepwalking Willis role. Sigourney mm. Weaver just is, it's like she's looked at a bit of paper and it said, just be mysterious. And she's like, right, got it. And Henry Cavill's massively miscast. And the whole film is so, it's only 90 minutes. It felt a lot longer because it, it just throws in these, throws in these moments. And you think, why is this in the film? Why is like this should be like a high octane, like 80, 85 minute ch- chase movie, which would be quite cool. But yeah, it's just, I, I saw some people say um, on, I don't know if it was a user comment or something somewhere saying that it was, they saw it as a, like a, like a Jason Bourne knockoff, but it's really not. It's more like something like, um, like we mentioned before breakdown. It's just him trying to find somebody mm. who's been kidnapped, but it's not kinetic enough. It's too stop starty mm. and it's too overplotted. And but he's you watch too it. buff. Yeah. yeah, it just it just isn't believable. Um, so film of the week then, yeah. Film of the week, yeah. I mean, for me, it's I, I watched a lot of films that were more informative. Just for like that was just like a perfect example of um, a film that was miscast. Shaft was fun because obviously I just was in the mood for it and triple X blah blah blah. But I think for me, Intruder because I expected just a like a stupid eighty slasher and it was actually full of golden people and it was a bit of a hidden horror mm. gem so I, I really enjoyed that so that's in, the intruder uh, yeah. from 1989 i will be watching that 100%. don't look at the um, cover don't, don't look at the cover you know the killer is. <laughs> um so of mine i'm gonna say uh, i mean the midnight sky was so disappointing but mm. I, I really i really like oblivion um but uh I think realistically, Real Steel was the one. I think Real Steel I'd choose just because it was such a pleasant surprise. Uh, because it's effectively a, like a, like a robot boxing movie for younger viewers, and so uh, and it's kind of sentimental. Um, and it's but it 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 is so well made, and I love Hugh Jackman, and it's so kind of wholesome and and good fun, and yeah. I really like that. So I would say real steel. Plus it, it looks like it cost an absolute bomb and then did bomb at the box office. So mm. it's just nice, nice getting to some, get, love, give it some love 10 years on. Yeah. 
I can't because you read like well. you, you, people love it. I mean, you read user reviews. It's just it's a very well loved movie, um, but I guess it's just a little bit of a cult movie now. Mm. So, right yeah. then, I'm off to watch Silk One and Two. Where have other people gone? Bumblebee and Real Steel. Excellent. I'll um. Well, I'll see you next time then. Yeah. Enjoy and and uh, enjoy the Intruder. I look forward to hearing what you think about it. Awesome. I might rewatch Galaxy of Terror. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Actually, we can chat about it next time then. I love you. <sighs> okay. Check you later. Bye.